This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Gone are the days when it was part of the rhetorical repertoire of many American politicians to proclaim that U.S. healthcare is the best in the world. Whether that was ever true or not, this proud and optimistic statement did take on the gloss of a truism. But it's not something that many people are saying anymore. Although they are saying that there, there are ways that the system can become the best. But first we have to get to the bottom of what's gone wrong and to figure out just how busted the system is. Is there anything salvageable to build on? Or is it so broken that we need to erase what's there and start over with a clean slate? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are in Rochester, Minnesota, in partnership with the Mayo Clinic Center for Innovation and its Transform Conference. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then the audience here in Rochester will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. Let's meet our debaters. First, the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome Shannon Brownlee. And Shannon, uh, you are a senior vice president of the Lown Institute and a visiting scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You are co-founder of the Right Care Alliance. That's a network of activist patients, clinicians, and community leaders. My question to you is, how important is, is it to have grassroots support in healthcare reform? It, it's absolutely essential. The system isn't going to change itself from inside, and it's going to need outside pressure, and that should be communities, it should be activists, physicians, it should be patients, it should be everybody who's involved in healthcare, and that's everybody. Okay, sounds like a little bit of a look ahead at your argument tonight. Thank you for that, and please tell us who your partner is. Oh, my partner is my friend and esteemed colleague, Robbie Pearl, an author of a great book, Mistreated. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Pearl. Please welcome Robert Pearl. I was just pointed out, the full title of your book, uh, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Uh, you're a doctor, Robert, who also has been hugely successful running a major corporation. So tell us, is, is there anything about getting a medical education, anything at all that you can then apply to running a business? There's so much. It's the scientific method of analysis. It's the mission-driven foundation for everything that's successful. It's why I teach at both the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Medical School. And you've also proved a success at it. Thanks very much to the team arguing for the motion. And that motion to remind you the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. We have two uh, debaters arguing against it. Please first welcome Ezekiel Emanuel. Um, Zeke, I want to point out that you're, you've come out with a new book. It's called Prescription for the Future, the 12 Transformational Practices of Highly Effective Medical Organizations. Uh, and you got huge attention back in 2014 when you declared back then that as far as you're concerned, the age of 75 is a perfectly adequate lifespan and that you would take no extraordinary efforts to live beyond that age. But you've also said that you expect American healthcare to improve substantially by the year 2030. 
which is 13 years from now. So does that change your mind about this dying at 75 thing? No. <laughs> I'm living a very full and fulfilling life, and I haven't had my first grandchild, but I haven't changed my mind one iota. All right. Thank you, Zeke Emanuel. And please tell us who your partner is. Oh, David Feinberg. He's uh, CEO of Geisinger Healthcare and uh, one of the more brilliant leaders in American healthcare today. Um, and David, uh, as he pointed out, you're CEO of Geisinger, and under your leadership, Geisinger launched a, a remarkable innovation, offering patients their money back if they were not um, satisfied with the kindness and compassion that they expected to receive. Did that move not bankrupt Geisinger? Oh, just the opposite, John. I think it's been the best secret shopper program ever in healthcare. Our patients are telling us what's right and what's wrong. That's excellent news. And again, I want to thank, welcome the team arguing against this motion. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. We go in three rounds. Let's move on to round one. Those are opening statements from each debater in turn. Up speaking first in support of the motion, the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. Here is Shannon Brownlee, Senior Vice President of the Lowne Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Shannon Brownlee. So you're going to vote on a single premise, but in fact there are two ideas in that premise. And one of them is you have to ask yourself the question, just how broken is the system anyway? And my partner, Robbie Pearl, and I agree if the healthcare system were a patient, we would have put it in the ICU long ago. But the second thing you must decide is whether or not the reforms that are in place can revive that patient. And we agree again, Robbie and I, it can't. We have fragmented care. We have burned out physicians and nurses. We have three quor- one, a quarter of a million patients die every year of errors, nosocomial infection, and adverse drug events. We've had a record number of drug recalls in the last decade, in part because we have an FDA that is a captive agency. It's bought and paid for by the industry that it's supposed to be regulating. And we're still paying fee-for-service, even though we know that fee-for-service rewards more care, not better care. It's kind of like paying for a car based on the number of parts in the car. Meanwhile, costs are out of control. We spend about $300 billion a year on services that patients don't need. And when you add it all up, the waste is about a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. So costs are also out of control because we have massively overinvested in the hospital sector and underinvested in primary care and community-based care. So I'll give you an example. I live in Washington, D.C., and two hospitals have proton beam machines, and two more are building them. Now, this is a $100 million machine that has been shown to be effective, more effective than standard radiation therapy for a handful of cancers. At most, we need one proton beam machine in Washington. In fact, really, we don't need any because we've got two in Baltimore, which is 30 miles away. As long as we keep paying free for service, hospitals are going to be thinking more about margin than they are about mission. Now, are ACOs going to right-size our hospital sector? So in 2012, we had had 32 pioneer ACOs. Today, we have eight. The other 24 dropped out because they didn't like the risk, and you can't blame them. 
When most of your book of business is in fee-for-service and a small part of it is at risk, it's like having one foot in two different canoes. So every one of these problems is fixable. But the legacy players, the hospitals, the drug companies, the insurers, they aren't going to like systemic solutions very much. And they won't fix the problems that exist until they have to. Now, our opponents are going to give you examples of incredible care, fantastic primary care, fantastic, um, fantastic medical records. But the problem is these are million-dollar solutions to a trillion-dollar problem. And they are not going to scale up. They're one-offs. I think that you have to vote in favor of the premise. The American healthcare system is terminally broken. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon Brownlee. And that's the motion. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. Our next debater will be speaking against the motion. He is Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania and author of Prescription for the Future. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Zeke Emanuel. Everyone agrees that the U.S. healthcare system is broken. There's $800 billion, a trillion dollars of waste at least $200 billion of unnecessary care and $130 billion of inefficiently delivered care, we are generally underperforming. No doubt about it. But the key word in the proposition is terminally broken. Now, let me just say, uh, Dr. Pearl there is a reconstructive surgeon. My partner, David Feinberg, is a child psychiatrist. I'm the only one who's an expert in terminal. I'm an oncologist. And I will tell you, we are not terminally ill. If you go around the country, there are multiple points of light and not only reserved for places like Mayo Clinic, Geisinger, and Kaiser. There are many, many places. You go to Caremore, which is a Medicare Advantage plan in Southern California. They care for chronically ill elders, much sicker than the average Medicare patient. They have 45% fewer hospital admissions. They're Readmission rate is, if you control for risk, 10% compared to Medicare's average at 17%. And in their dialysis patient, they have 85% fewer bed days. Just one example. If you go to a small group in Hawaii, they've addressed behavioral health problems. For four days a week, they've co-located psychologists in their practice, and they treat depression, anxiety, smoking cessation problems, insomnia, and even patients who are non-compliant with medical disorders and have substantially improved their performance. Palliative care, another area where we have underperformed for many years. I've been studying it for 35 years. We now have interesting groups, a company, for-profit company based in Nashville, Tennessee, Aspire, that begins palliative care 12 months before they identify patients, send out a nurse to the home, and they've seen 25% savings uh, over that period of time. These are but a handful of thousands of examples around the country. So how do we scale them? Well, let's be honest. The key is behavior change. Behavior change of doctors and behavior change of patients. There is no disagreement between our side and the affirmative side that we need to change off the fee-for-service system. We already are moving off the fee-for-service system. 
Shannon downplayed the, affordable, uh, the accountable care organizations. Actually, today, there are 32 million Americans in ACOs through Medicare and commercial plans. And we know that the longer a group stays in the ACOs until the fourth year, then they begin to see real transformation. Bundle payments. We've seen tremendous change in bundle payments in creating efficiency, in bringing down the cost. And most importantly, we have MACRA, which is a bipartisan bill passed, and it is financially incentivizing doctors. Either they take these alternative payment methods, which moves them off fee-for-service, or they have very, very high pay-for-performance, up 9% or down 9%, to actually improve quality, but also being responsible for the cost of care. But we need to be careful about the timeline. We are not going to transform it overnight. 2030 is the right time scale. This is not like flipping the switch. This is change over time of a $3.4 trillion industry. We are not terminally ill. We can save the American healthcare system. Thank you, Zeke Emanuel. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The U.S. health care system is terminally broken. You have heard the first two opening statements. And now on to the third. I want to welcome to the stage uh, Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Pearl. The American healthcare system is terminally broken. Shannon's told you the magnitude of the problems and the solutions that exist are simply inadequate to be able to overcome the shortcomings that led to the premature death of my father. My father, Jack Pearl, was an amazing man, the son of two immigrant parents. When World War II came around, he could have stayed behind American lines. He volunteered for the 101st Airborne. Later in life, he developed a hemolytic anemia. You need to have the spleen take it out. My brother and I, my brother's the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford, handpicked the doctors, the half in New York and the half in Florida who lived for each six months of the year. They were excellent physicians. They all knew that after splenectomy, you're at much higher risk for an infection called pneumococcus. They all knew that there was a vaccine. But the ones in New York thought Florida gave it to him. Florida thought New York. Primary care thought specialty care. Especially, he never had it. Came out to visit my brother and me. Next morning at 5 o'clock, my brother finds my dad on the floor, unresponsive. The diagnosis? Pneumococcal septicemia. One of 200,000 people that year and every year, including this year, who will die from preventable medical errors. Embedded in this story is much that is wrong. Much that is wrong with American medicine today. It is still paid. 92% of physicians get paid on a fee-for-service basis. They get rewarded for splenectomy. They don't get rewarded for thinking about how they can make sure he got the vaccine that is needed. If we're going to address not just quality, but also address cost, we have to move from fee-for-service to capitation. It's difficult, but anything less will be incomplete. Zeke talked about bundle payments. The evidence says in bundle payments, costs come down on a unit basis, but doctors do more. 
When hospitals and doctors consolidate, what do we see happening? They don't use it to improve efficiency and effectiveness of care. No, they use it to raise the price by controlling the marketplace. And the alphabet soup of current Medicare, MACRA, and MIPS and APMs, doctors don't even understand this. Yeah, they'll meet the bundle, the requirements to get paid. But they will never change the way they provide care under the current rules. His doctors didn't have the information they needed. Every American needs to have the totality of the medical information available to every physician, hospital, at every point of contact. It can be done. It's called ATMs. But it won't get done. Why is that? Because the people who manufacture and sell the electronic health records are not going to open up their, what's called APIs, the application processing uh, software that's necessary for third-party developers to come in because they know it will break the stranglehold they have on those who have purchased the systems already. And primary care. My father's primary care physician was overwhelmed, as physicians are across the nation today in primary care. 20, 25, 30 patients being seen every single day. What we know today is that the American healthcare system is terminally broken. All the small fixes you heard about from Zeke will make a small degree the one-offs. People in one area will do it, but not in another area. We've got to change all of American medicine, how it's organized, how it's reimbursed, how it is led, how it's technologically supported. I urge you to vote yes on the motion so that the work can begin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert Pearl. Again, the motion is the U.S. health care system is terminally broken. And here's our final debater in making an opening statement against the motion, David Feinberg, the president and CEO of Geisinger. Please welcome David Feinberg. Thanks, John. We could fix every problem we have in health care immediately, 50% of the cost. If we ate right, we didn't use illegal drugs, we drank alcohol in moderation, we wore our seatbelts. We didn't shoot one another. Overnight, we fixed the health care debate. And all, all we hear about ACOs and MIPS and MACRA, that's mumbo-jumbo. And when, when I'm sure that our opponents will tell you that the United States spends more on health care than most industrialized countries, and our outcomes aren't as good, But that graph is actually misleading because the United States spends the least amount on social services compared to those other countries. And when you combine social service spend and medical spend, we're kind of just in the middle. So we have an option. We can either start spending as a country on social services or it's up to the healthcare system to fill that gap. So can it be done? Well, Robert represented an organization that has showed our country how to do this the right way. Kaiser Permanente, which starts in Oakland, California. Geisinger Health System, which starts in Danville, Pennsylvania, are examples that healthcare reform does not start in Washington, D.C. It starts in communities that are committed to the people that are living there, that understand the problems, and engage in creative and innovative solutions to make things better, so that every patient gets care that's compassionate, safe, dignified, and low cost. So we've done some things at Geisinger. We've sequenced 100,000 people's entire DNA for free. 
We look at their DNA, and about 4% of those people have medically actionable conditions that we can intervene with before the bad thing happens. Healthcare is not just about getting to the doctor and getting to the hospital. It's understanding your genetic code and also your zip code. We have towns like Shamokin, Pennsylvania, where 80% of the kids are on subsidized lunch. The rates of diabetes are one in four to one in five. Guess what happens when we bring those people in and we say to them, here is food, fresh fruits, vegetables, lean meats. We're going to teach you about your diabetes and we're going to give you and your family this food to eat. Every single patient has had a decrease in their hemoglobin A1C, in their blood pressure, in their weight. If this was a pill, it would be a multi-billion dollar pill. We can use food as medicine. When you go to the dermatologist at Kaiser and you check in, they say to you, we notice you haven't had your colonoscopy. Can we get that scheduled for you? They're closing care gaps on every single patient. So these primary preventions are saving millions of lives and they've published that. Now, the question that Shannon says, are these just pilots and can they scale? I got news for you. People call us. People call Kaiser every day. Bundles, and we can debate whether they're good or bad, have now spread across the country. So I believe healthcare reform begins with the docs, the nurses, the patients, the moms, the brothers and sisters, the communities coming together, taking care of one another, scaling these great ideas, and making sure that every patient gets the exact kind of care that you'd want for everyone in your family. Thank you very much. Thank you, David Feinberg. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in Rochester. We have two teams arguing for and against the motion. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. We've heard from Shannon Branley and Robert Pearl, who are arguing for the motion. They're saying that, yes, there are reforms in place, but they cannot make the system work, that costs are out of control, too much emphasis still on paying fee for service. The team arguing against the motion, Zeke Emanuel and David Feinberg, they concede also that, in fact, the system is broken, but they say it's not terminally broken. Basically, they are saying that the solutions for the future, which probably both sides agree upon in the end game, they're saying that those solutions for the future are already baked into the present. I want to take the argument to the side arguing for the motion and start with you, Shannon Brownlee. Um, Your opponent's taking issue with your argument that the the points of light, the islands of excellence, cannot be scaled. And they're saying, sure they can. Argue that point with them. Well, you know, I've been around a long time and reporting on healthcare for a long time when I was a reporter, back when I was a reporter. And um, we've seen periods of ferment in healthcare before. And each time there are these incredible points of light, and I don't argue them at all. They are fantastic, and there are a lot of them. But somehow, the existing legacy players somehow mean, manage to beat it back. Why is this time different? Let's so, take that to I, I think, uh, let's look at uh, the mid-90s. We had a big push to control health care costs uh, after the failure of the Clinton health care reform, and it was managed care, and it basically was 1-800-JUST-SAY-NO. Um, and the public did revolt against that and did 
want more choice and not drive-through deliveries. And the consequence was we got rid of any management and costs did go up. Now we have a different problem. Now the problem the public is upset about is affordability. You have the public that is pushing, you have employers that are pushing, and you have changes in policy throughout okay. the system. And that push altogether okay. is going to drive the system. And, so, and, and we have something else that we didn't have back then. We have data. We now have an electronic health record, as clunky it is, is and tough it is. It, we now have data to help make these decisions that we didn't have the, so, in the 90s. So you're saying there is now an alignment of forces that has never been seen before working in favor of the, your side of the argument. I want to take that to Robert Pearl. That's why they're saying this time it's different. Yeah. So a couple of things. First, in terms of the bundle of payments, what does the data show? Bundle payments work very nicely to lower unit price. And what have we seen? We've seen two things. Physicians do more total joints now, and on spine surgery, they do more complex. The cost increase from the complexity that has been put in place in response is more than the dollars that have been saved. But I want to address something that David said, which is he's absolutely right. We have places like Geisinger and Kaiser and Mayo that do things very well. They've been at it for 100 years, Mayo, over 100 years. The question is, how do you take a broken fee-for-service system, a 19th century cottage industry with doctors scattered across the community, small hospitals in every town, and now put that together into a Geisinger or a Kaiser? It can be done. The problem is it can't be done across the so state. Shannon, so tell Shannon, me, so tell me. Can I say something? No, wait. I want how, Shannon to Tell me how, how is Kaiser or Geisinger, Geisinger better, how is Geisinger going to make, make inroads in Pittsburgh? See, actually, Robert is, 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 is an inspiration for me, and he's given the answer to that question. Here's how he, how, what he says from his book. Okay, this, actually, Robert should bring his chair over here. Um, transforming the conditions of American medicine will be difficult but possible. The first step, so here's the answer, Shannon, from your partner, will be awakening, becoming aware of patients, how we're mistreated. That's the first step. From there, we'll need youthful optimism. That will be followed by years of hard work. And at the end, I hope we will have freed American medicine from the outdated college industry okay. it resembles today. Shannon, Robert, Robert Pearl. Shannon Brownlee, to respond. But, but you've got to read the whole book to find <laughs> out. <laughs> David, that is not going to happen in yeah. Pittsburgh. <laughs> yes. We have one state that's globally budgeted all of its hospitals, and it's going along pretty well. It's not like they have suddenly become all, everybody's at risk instantly. They're moving slowly. It's the state of Maryland. But they're getting there. But it took, it took a, a big shift in somebody saying from the top, we're not going to pay you fee-for-service anymore. We're not going to pay the same way. She said that change is going to have to come from the top. And you made an argument in your opening, David, that the change actually has to come from the bottom. That's right. So w- respond to her point on that, then. Can I just say something? It, sure. Look, it's synergistic. It's partially from below with innovative doctors and hospitals. It's partially from above that changes the financial incentives. Let me give you a very good example of where we've had massive change in the system. It's far from perfect. But before... The uh, um, Recovery Act in 2009, there were 9% of hospitals had electronic health records. No doctors had electronic health records. We put in incentives to say you had to use health, electronic health records. Seven years later, every hospital has an electronic health record. You're absolutely right. Hospitals have done it. Fewer than 20% of physician offices could communicate with that machine even though it's next door. 
And that is going to be the big leap. It's not getting a hospital to be able to do it to meet regulatory. I you, keep hear, I, saying, I, you keep saying, oh, everything's an exception. Everything can't be an exception. These are, are good examples that are okay. going to be generalized. And that's why you were optimistic in your book. Excuse me. I want to hear more from Shannon. I, you know, I actually I find myself agreeing with a great deal of what our opponents say. Um, I think you want to come abs- over to our side, too? <laughs> no, not at the moment. But... Um, the, the piece that's really important that you just said, Zeke, which is that the, the innovation is bubble, has to bubble up from underneath. But there are some things that have to be imposed from above, and the shift in payment has to be imposed. We agree. So who's going to do the imposing? Um, Medicare hasn't done it yet. I'm hoping at some point it's going to move to some kind of global budgeting. Um, but are the private plans really going to move this direction? I've had an opportunity to work in, a, in a, an academic medical center and now in an integrated delivery health system. It, it's a culture and an understanding that takes years to develop. And if we push it, I think we're really, it's a recipe for disaster. Maybe we should see and look, look and see what happens in the state of Maryland. So we have examples across the board. We have private payers, uh, insurance companies uh, driving some of this. We have public plans working towards financial payment change to drive this transformation in care to lower costs and higher quality. We have the various Medicare plans. Let me give you one example. When the oncology bundle was announced by Medicare to give doctors a set price for giving chemotherapy to patients, and they got more money to talk to patients and less money for their chemotherapy. 15% of American oncologists voluntarily signed up for this because they want to shift how they're practicing. Okay. The totality of American healthcare is not changing significantly enough. The drug industry spent $150 billion, sorry, $150 million in the first six months of this year on lobbying and on getting contributions to people's campaign funds. Do you think they're going to let a significant change happen without a major revolution in this country? The revolution has got to come. It's not going to happen on its own. Question, sir. Dr. Feinberg, I'd like to bring you back to your opening statement. Uh, As an example, I got off of a train in the Netherlands, and there were bike racks. Yes. Not for five bikes, not for ten bikes, but for 3,000 bikes. Is it our healthcare system that's broken, or are there other contributing factors that cause the United States to be lower in the overall ratings? It's, It's exactly what your question brings up. And I'm not an expert, but I think Amsterdam 10 years ago had no bikes. And the city and the people decided to make it a bike city. And there's so many people biking that it's actually safe to bike there because every driver of a car also is a biker. And so they watch out for each other and there's three stoplights. That's communities saying, let's get healthy. And if we do that, we don't have to worry about opening more cath labs, and we don't have to worry about getting da Vinci's if we can get people to ride bikes. So can, I, can I just say one other thing? The reason we're cutting back in schools is health care costs. Let's not forget it. States have fixed budgets. It's very hard for any governor to raise taxes. And when Medicare goes up, they have to cut something. And where they're cutting is education. That's why we're seeing those cuts that you mentioned. Opposing- and if we want better services there... We have to get health care costs under control. It is, it's absolutely imperative. Health care is effectively robbing state and local governments of the ability to pay for education, to pay for roads, to pay for social services. And 
the question that I think we have to answer is what's the mechanism going to be for that transfer of that money? So if, if venture capitalists come in and do, do a, lot of, a number of the things that Zeke is talking about were, were, were funded by venture capitalists because they're smart. They see a trillion dollars of waste in that system and they want to put at least some of it in their own pockets. They're not going to be giving it back to those communities. So what's the mechanism that's going to work? Is it democracy in this country? That's not working so well either. I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two debating this motion. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. Next question, please. So I have heard a lot about the social determinants of health, which I agree is very important. What I'm curious about is for these private integrated health systems that, that are clearly making a profit, what are you doing to give money back to the community and to support the 28 million uninsured Americans? We're giving food. We're okay. giving housing. We're giving health literacy. The reason I'm stepping three. is I don't think you guys are going to disagree about the, 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 that problem, and, and our disagreement is really about is the system broken? And, but I'm so going to disagree with one thing. I don't, think that it's, I don't think that having the hospital do that is the right way we ought to be doing that. So, so, I mean, that's, but how does that, that is how, a Band-Aid on a Shannon, social how does that, problem. how does your answer play to the thing that we're arguing here? It, it's simply that, that when health care is, is effectively robbing our state and local and federal governments of the money to be able to, do, to provide these kinds of services, to provide education, to provide housing, et cetera, et cetera, then um, we have to find a way to extract the money out of the system. We can't just have, keep the money in the health care system and then have it do its little bit for you know, giving to community services and giving to a little bit to housing. Hippocrates said food is medicine. Kaiser spends 3% of its, of its entire revenue on giving back to communities and social determinants and building walkways and, and affordable housing and making sure that there's farmer's markets. Kaiser could have done because, a lot Because more. legally it is required to by the federal government or the tax rules. And that's what we're saying. We need major intervention to drive the system in the right direction. Show me a hospital that's not expanding. That's not building. That's not buying high-cost technology. These investments are being made for the most part in Silicon Valley. I live there in very expensive systems designed to make a lot of money. It's not being invested in the communities, in the wellness programs. It's not being invested there in the so, big dollars. So, Robert, you've got to leave Silicon Valley. So I left Beverly Hills, <laughs> and I went to central Pennsylvania. And in central Pennsylvania, we are converting hospitals and getting rid of cath labs and making a multi-specialty clinics that are focusing on primary and secondary care. Hospital and we are beds ch- are going down correct. in America. A lot. And let me give you an example. When did we reach the peak of hospitalization in America? 1981. We had 170 hospitalizations per 1,000 patients. We're now down to 109 hospitalizations per 1,000. And the fact is, we are getting people out of the hospital. We're closing hospital beds, uh, just contrary to what Robbie said. The major intervention... I'm going to move on to another question, sir, if you can step up. Thank you very much for your question. If you could tell us your name, please. Hi, Matthew Gardner. And... While there may be some isolated solutions to heal health care, will the system overall be effective soon enough? All right. Zeke, you're saying 
2030, you think this is happening. What, what gives you this 2030 confidence? And then I want to let the other side respond to it. That's pretty soon. Well, it's 13 years. Uh, I think we're well on our way to doing two things, changing how we pay and responding to those changes with practices that we know can, uh, if applied, consistently lead to higher quality, lower care. And the real issue here is, are we going to have more payment change and uh, can we uh, get more adoption and transferring of those uh, practices? And that's not impossible. Remember, 13 years from now, the people who are coming out of training will be about 45 years old. And they are going to be the dominant force in the health care system. 13 years ago, we had, we had 30 million Americans who didn't have health insurance. We have made changes that people didn't think we could make. Robert How Pearl. many are uninsured t- today? 12 so, million? Is that so the right number? I, I think that's an amazingly great question. It's the trauma to heal and the trauma of the transition. Had we had health care costs parallel GDP for the past 20 years... We'd have 5 million fewer jobs in the United States. We'd probably have a dramatic reduction in hospitals. It would have been very traumatic. We didn't do that. Upton Sinclair said, it's very hard to get a person to understand that which will affect their income. And I think that that's the problem that sits in place now. Everyone agrees about the things that need to happen. But when you look at what's really happening, hospitals and physicians are finding ways to consolidate, to raise prices. Drug companies are consolidating to raise prices. The kind of resistance to that pain... Excuse me, Robbie, maybe you haven't looked at the health care cost data recently, but contrary to what you just said, since passage of the Affordable Care Act, health care costs have been flat as a percentage of GDP. Flat, 17.5% in 2010, 17.5% in 2016. The change is happening, and when you're shifting a $3.4 trillion ship, that's the fifth largest economy in the world, it's going to take 10 years. But 10 years is not never. Next question, please. Hi, so I'm Laurie Skinner, and this um, question is, in regards to MACRA and other quality incentive or quality metrics, Dr. Pearl, you made the comment that quality may not reduce overall cost. Um, can you please explain? And if it will not impact our current health care system, why are we spending all this time measuring it? Yes, so, could you explain that, Dr. Pearl? I'd love to explain this. First the of all, I about macro is, it's so complex that I'm not sure that people even understand all of it. The amount of time that it's going to take to provide the data is going to be discouraging. They'll do it to get the payments, but I don't think it'll change the underlying piece that sits in place. So why are we doing it? Because it saves lives. That doesn't lower total Shannon, cost of care? Let, let, let Shannon break in, please. So, but there's another problem with the quality metrics. A whole heck of a lot of them don't have anything to do with actually improving patients' health. They are the metrics that we have. And so I think quality metrics are probably not a bad idea, but let's get the metrics that actually matter to patients' health. And let's not have quality metrics that drive physicians to do things that are actually counterproductive, which is what's happening to many, with many of these metrics. Shannon, do you think the quality uh, movement is going in the direction you just said? I don't see it. Oh, I think we're going way better from checklist and process to more outcome. I think it's happening. One more question, please. Thank you. Uh, Julie Wang from Mayo Clinic. If all the providers in this country become good at managing risk and become risk-bearing entities, will that solve our fundamental issue and turn the health system around? Let's take the other side first. If it actually works, 
if we're actually able to change it, it will have a very good impact upon the health of the country. I'm just still very skeptical that people will do it. They'll, they'll fill out the check boxes and make the things happen. I don't think they're really going to change the underlying social determinants, the other wellness factors, all the other things that go on, unless everyone is a checkbox, and now you're going to totally swamp the primary care physicians in the United States, for which we already do not have enough of them. Well, you know, your question is a great one. And if everybody did the right thing, we solve another problem. We have a provider shortage. And if everyone does the right thing, all of a sudden we don't need as many doctors as that we, we currently have. So I, I think that, that that's an important piece in all of this. We're, we, in, especially in some rural areas and in underserved areas, trying to find primary care, specialty care is almost impossible, pediatric subspecialists. If we can get docs... And the choosing wisely is another example of docs coming forward and saying, let's do the right thing. And you can poke fun at it, but it has improved care and it has come from the bottom up, will allow us to have more providers because we eliminate that unnecessary care. David, wait a second. We don't have a shortage of physicians. We have too many specialists and not enough primary care physicians in the United States today. In, in Philadelphia, there's, what, seven medical centers that are sitting there. We don't need all those pieces. We need them to come together with enough volume to do things well. We need twice as many primary care. We're not training them, and we're making their lives miserable right now. And that, Rob, conclu- and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater. They will be brief. Making her closing statement for the motion, Shannon Brownlee, Senior Vice President of the Lown Institute. Thanks. So um, I think Zeke has kind of painted me and and Robbie as as the bad news bears. It's all doomed. Everything's terrible. Everything's lost. And in fact, that's not the way I think. I believe we can have a truly great and uniquely American healthcare system, and not because Winston Churchill once said uh, Americans uh, eventually come to the right answer, but only after trying everything else. We can have a great healthcare system because of all the examples that Zeke and David have brought up. But the really big issue here is this need for a, a radically different system is not going to become a reality until we become honest about what's really wrong with the system. Now, we all know what's wrong with the system out in the audience, but the American public doesn't get it yet. And we need to start talking to them. And I want people to get out of their clinics and out of their hospitals, and I want them to start talking to their friends, to their neighbors, to their, to their relatives, even the ones who wrote, voted for the wrong candidate. I want them to start talking at their churches and their mosques and their synagogues about what's really going on in healthcare and what a truly great system could look like. Because if we don't do that, we dishonor the suffering that's still going on. So the gulf between the system that they've described and the system that we have today is so wide that I think you have to vote for the premise. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken, but it can and will be fixed. Thank you, Shannon Brownlee. And that's the motion. The U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken, making his closing statement against the motion. Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, the system underperforms. Yes, the system has got a lot of problems, monumental problems, that we need strong medicine, we agree. 
but that does not mean we're terminally ill. In the provider community, among doctors, hospitals, health systems like Geisinger and Kaiser, we have lots of innovation going on out there, and that innovation is not limited to just the big giants who can afford it because they have revenues in the billions of dollars. Small practices are doing it, intermediate hospitals are doing it, and many other groups. Primary care, lots of places like Iora and Village MD and others. Mental health services, end-of-life care and palliative care. Who would have thought 10 years ago you'd have new companies in these spaces to transform the system? Change is happening from below, and it's being propelled from above by payers who are saying, we need to adopt those things, and we're going to pay you differently. More and more health systems are being at risk, and they're going to change how they pay their doctors so that they have a stake in the finances as well as the quality. That's the direction of the future. And that means we will have one of the world's best healthcare systems by 2030. Now, let me conclude with one element why I am wildly optimistic about the American healthcare system. It's called the Judgment of Paris. In 1976, there was a battle over the best wines, California versus France, in Paris, France, with nine out of the 12 judges being from France. California won. California used to produce junk wine, and then it became the world's best. The American healthcare system is going to be exactly like California wine. We're mediocre. Soon we're going to be the world's best. Thank you, Zeke Emanuel. The motion, the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken, and making his closing statement in support of the motion, Robert Pearl. So the Commonwealth Fund last month put out its review of the global healthcare environment. The United States was number one in cost for the 10th year in a row. We were last amongst the 11 industrialized nations. We are last. It's a huge gap to close. We all agree on where we need to get to. The size of the gap is what we disagree around. We've got to get rid of fee-for-service and move to capitation so physicians have as much incentive to prevent the heart attack and stroke as to treat it. At the end of my father's life, my brother and I got a phone call. He'd had a bleed into his brain. We hopped on a red eye. We flew to Miami. There he was, strapped in his bed, intubated. Out the door was a line of doctors. The ENT doctor wanted to do the tracheostomy. The GI doc put the feeding tube in place. The neurosurgeon took out pieces of his skull. We looked at the x-ray. He's not getting better. We said, thank you for your care, but no thank you. For the next two and a half days, we never saw another physician. There is no fee-for-service code, CPT, ICD-9 code, for compassion. There is no way to get paid in the American healthcare system today to be with a family in its time of greatest grief. The first thing is acknowledging that the system is terminally broken, then having the courage and having the leadership to make the changes, to make it once again, as it should be, the best in the world. I urge you to vote for the motion so that the hard work can begin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert Pearl. And one more time, that motion is the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. And here making his closing against the motion, David Feinberg, president and CEO of Geisinger. 25 years ago, my wife and I had our first child, and I was pretty sleep-deprived. I was a second-year fellow in psychiatry, and I was telling a father, he happened to be a used car salesman. He sold Cadillacs in Las Vegas, but they had brought, he had brought his son. He was a single dad. The mom had left. He brought his son to UCLA because he had his first psychotic break. 
And I had a very, very small office as a fellow. When you opened the door, I actually had to bend, move the chair so that I could put the chair back after I closed the door. And I thought I was really smart. I'd been trained at great places. And I talked to this dad about neurotransmitters and dopamine and reuptake and anticholinergic and all the things that happen with a first psychotic break. And he looked at me and he said, are you telling me I need to build a room out back? And I started crying because I was sleep deprived. I had a new baby. And I realized that the trajectory in this family's life had changed dramatically. And from that point forward, I said, I'm going to talk to patients in a way they, they understand. I'm going to sure, make sure patients get compassionate care. A few years later, I saw a third grader who had tied yarn around her neck. She actually wrote in a haiku poem that she wanted to tie yarn around her neck and commit suicide. Because the family knew somebody, they were able to get in within three weeks. Picture yourself with a third grader that writes in her haiku poem uh, that she wants to kill yourself and it takes three weeks to get in and that's because you had an in. From that point forward, all I've tried to do is improve access so that every patient could get in the same day. If you strip down what we do, we are simply people caring for people. It's going to take us, all of us, to change this system. I'm all in, and I hope you will come on the journey with us. Thank you, David Feinberg. And that concludes closing statements in this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. The votes are in. Here's how it works. You voted twice. It's the difference between the first vote and the second vote. Whoever went up the most uh, who will be named our winner. The motion again, the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. On the first vote on that, 42% of you agreed with the motion, 34% of you disagreed, and 24% were undecided. Those were the first results. Let's look at the second result. In the second result, the team arguing for the motion, the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken. From their first vote was 42%. Their second vote was 45%. They picked up three percentage points. That is now the number to beat. Let's see the team against the motion. Their first vote was 34%. Their second vote was 51%. They pulled up 17 percentage points. That's what it takes. The team arguing against the motion, the U.S. healthcare system is terminally broken our winners. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at Transform, the annual conference of the Mayo Clinic Center for Innovation held in Rochester, Minnesota. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. And Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. Thank you to the Mayo Clinic Center for Innovation for hosting us at their annual conference and for helping to make this debate a reality. And as always, Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible through generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, 
the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rhine, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thanks to all of you.